Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. You're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Today we're speaking with Dorian Greenbaum, a lady who knows a thing or two about ancient astrology, here to talk to us about ancient astrology, specifically with regard to the great Platonist philosopher of the third century, Porphyry of Tyre. Dorian, nice one. Great to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Earl. I'm delighted to be here. So... Before we get to Porphyry, I think it would be a really good idea for my own feeble mind, if not for our listeners, to situate ourselves in terms of astrology in the third century Roman Empire. The last we saw astrology on this podcast was episode 116 with Marilyn Lawrence talking about Plotinus and astrology, which is some superb window onto what's happening, although very short. And then before that, it was when we discussed Vettius Valens and Ptolemy in episodes 88 and 89. So we've definitely had tasters of astrology, but I'm thinking what would be really to do before we get into Porphyry is try to get a an overview of the scene. And that's especially valuable because astrology being the understudied subject that it is, and when studied, often studied either through a viewpoint that it's, you know, pseudoscience, it's superstition, whatever. So we don't really need to pay that much attention to how it works. Or by people who have their own astrological viewpoint and want to kind of project that onto everyone. It seems like there's an awful lot of different theoretical approaches and then also practical approaches in this period that are all something we would call astrology. So let me lay out the way I see it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong and help me fill in the gaps that I'm leaving out. So if, we, if we're limiting the term astrology to divination, right? So we're not talking about just belief that the stars are divine, for example, which is sometimes scholars talk about as astrology. We're talking about looking at the movements of the stars and, and figuring out the relevance of that to what's happening here on Earth. That's what we mean by astrology. You've got like a whole range of theoretical models behind that. And we don't often get our astrologers giving us the theory so you kind of have to reconstruct it. And then as you've pointed out, sometimes they give the theory, but then their actual practice seems to sort of contradict the theory a little bit. But you've got what scholars sometimes call hard fatalists, who are people who think everything is causally determined. There is a nex- an inescapable nexus of fate that goes into the future forever. And basically everything in the future is determined by everything in the past. But specifically by the stars. So the stars are a kind of causal mechanism that generates fate. That's one view. Then you've got a view of what I think seems to be the the dominant view in the Middle Ages, in the Abrahamic world, but still just one option among many in the ancient world, which is the sort of astral influence view, where the stars emit influences down onto Earth. So that when but that affects, obviously, if you're born at a certain point, the influences affect you then and there. So it's like they're shooting out rays, like in Alkindi's De Radius, but not necessarily expressed as rays, right? So there's that view. Then there's the view that the stars are simply signs, that there's like a one-to-one correspondence between what happens on Earth and what happens in the heavens, but there's no causal linkage necessarily. Or you could have a modified version of this, that there might be a causal linkage, but we're not sure. But there, anyway, there is this observed relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So these are all potential 
viewpoints. There's also Ptolemy's viewpoint in the Tetrabiblos, which is a completely naturalistic causal chain a la Aristotle. But we don't yes. necessarily think that that was common among astrologers, practicing astrologers. It later has an outsized influence on the medieval tradition, but in antiquity, yes. he's he's a bit of an outlier from surviving evidence. Have I laid yes. this out fairly so far? Uh, yes, I think I think that's pretty much a good little summary of the kinds of ways that people look at astrology and the various astrologers that practice astrology. I mean, I certainly do think that there's always that connection with looking at the heavens uh, as containing divinity and learning from the patterns in the heavens what it is the gods want us to do. This is the main uh, framework in Mesopotamia, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Well, um, it's actually looking at the gods themselves in a very yes. real, direct way. Yes. What is What is Ishtar doing tonight? Okay, that's telling us something important. Yes, yes exactly. Um, and when you get into into sort of a, the Hellenistic period, you know, starting 3rd, 2nd century BCE, you get versions of that all over the Mediterranean region, in happening in Egypt, happening in Greece, and even with Plato, there's definitely cosmological content. Yeah. In the Timaeus, of course, yeah. um, and, and that kind of thing. And, and of course, astrologers do not live in a vacuum, so here they are, absorbing all of the zeitgeist around them and their their practice i think whether it's overtly and consciously or not uh, reflects these kinds of views so uh for instance you get people like ptolemy as you said going for a very naturalistic astrology finding the physical reasons why events in the sky have an effect on earthly events and you get other astrologers being maybe eclectic in their philosophies. And I would put Valens in that category, Vettius Valens, for sure. But yes, I think that's that's a fairly accurate uh, vision of what's going on. And astrology is never a monolith. This is the other the other problem. Well, this is a this is I'm really glad I took this exercise of trying to sum things up so far, if only for making that point that it's not a monolith. And yes. when scholars talk about astrology in antiquity as a monolith, as you often see, you see it very often. Um, you do. They're totally getting it wrong. It's in a way, it's like they're saying the philosophers believed X, Y, Z. It's like, well, no, there were different schools. They, they actually believed different things, right? Well, exactly. And, you know, a Stoic and a Platonist walked into a bar, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> now, before we get on to the porf, the big porf, I know that your reading of Vettius puts puts a bit of a hole in the reading that I presented in my episode um, 89 of the podcast, which presents him as a stark fatalist that any Stoic would recognize as a, brother, a fellow traveler, except maybe that not every Stoic would consider the stars as the key to this all this chain of causation. They would, they would sort of consider the whole universe the key. But Vettius obviously thinks the stars is where it's at. But um, yes. why do you think that this is not such a good reading of Vettius? Well, I think that, as I said in different words before, he he talks one game, but he plays another. Mm. So he will say, 
your life is is faded in a way and the only thing you can do is accept the fact that the that, that there's nothing you can do about the events that are going to happen to you in your life except say oh fine you know i guess i'll accept that and i'll feel much better which i guess you could call maybe closer to a stoic position right but then when he gives examples and he does there are a lot of charts in Vettius Valens, in his textbook, a lot, many, many second century charts and interpretations of various doctrines that he's discussing. In those, especially when he goes into detail about things that happen to people, this is not, oh, well, this is going to happen to you, and this is going to be the result, and too bad for you. And and I'm thinking of one example where he's talking about a dancer who has two sets of astrological circumstances that are 12 years apart. So they're basically the same kinds of circumstances are happening uh, every 12 years for this person. And he has something happen to him in the first, the, the beginning of the 12 year period, right? Where he gets into trouble, but he gets out of it because of good things that happen to him and being lucky really. Right. But the next time those circumstances come come around, he's not so lucky, and things do not go in the way that they went the first time where he got out of trouble. And to me, that says that he does see differences in the astrological circumstances, so they are not necessarily going to determine uh, the way that things happen to you and the the, the final outcome of of what's going on there. Right. So some details at least can be left out. Like there's a, even if there's a fatalistic scheme of, of yes. ineluctable things that will happen, there's details right. that can change. And, and right. I mean, it, that would make sense in the sense that if one of the uses of astrology is to know what's going to happen, know your fate and resign yourself to it so you can deal with it philosophically, like in a clever way rather than freaking out which is one of the yes. things that Vettius says astrology is good for. Right. Obviously, there are, there's at least a kind of freedom in your mind as to how you deal with stuff. So that automatically yeah. means it's not a fully hard fate. Unless, yes. I mean, unless he has some kind of compatibilist doctrine of fate. that, it, And that's beyond me. I, that's beyond my pay grade, that kind of stuff. But Yeah, yeah. The word compatibilist had come into my mind as you were, as you were talking there. And I, but I do think, um, I also think that Valens, although he met, come across as a real fatalist, he is also a huge fan of providence. Right. Is the Greek pronoia, and which for him is absolutely a thing Hmm. and is very important as you live your life to allow for this idea of providence to improve or whatever word you'd like to use the way that things turn out. Gotcha. And you can't necessarily just sit down and say, well, providence, I'd like you to stop by this afternoon on your way home from work. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for clearing that up on, on Valens, or at least um, nuancing the issue yeah. in a good way. We know that Providence, even if you are a hard fatalist, but not a Stoic. Well, the Stoics would just say Providence, fate, same thing. Um, for someone with a more <laughs> layered cosmos, a layered architecture of reality, hey, Marmene, fate is down here. But above that, 
you have providence. So fate is contained within providence, and fate is yes. like a kind of more detail-oriented thing. While providence, providence is maybe the big picture, working yes, for exactly. the good. Exactly. Yes. I and I definitely think that that Valens had knowledge of that whole scheme. Right. Being in the second century, as he did. Yeah. Now here we are in the late third century, later third yes. century, looking at the great Porphyry. Now. It's notable to me reading Porphyry how blindingly different from Plotinus he is. This this just shows us that slavish obedience to doctrine was not a prerequisite for being a student in ancient philosophic schools, right? Absolutely. You could be your own yes. guy and have your own thoughts and your own theories and still be like the chief student of this guy. One of the things that's really interesting in Porphyry is see, Plotinus... Porphyry says it himself. He, sh- he knew a little bit about astral chart making. Um, yes. But he wasn't that into the whole, like, tabula, like all the kind of um, tables of, right. of risings and settings and stuff like that. Right. Porphyry's really into that stuff, seemingly, and integrates it with his theory of descent of the soul, ascent of the soul, etc. So what, what kind of astrologer is Porphyry? <sighs> well... I don't think that's such an easy question to answer, but I do think that his, first of all, his Platonism is a huge informant of his philosophy and the way he views astrology, but he's not, he's not dogmatic about it. I don't think, I mean, this is what I love about Porphyry. He really is so, He's eclectic, but he's he's so intensely curious about everything, you know. And that's what I that's one of the things that I really like about him. He's he's not doctrinaire, I don't think. And just as an aside, I'm so happy that there seems to be a trend now in looking at Porphyry seriously as as an amazing thinker in his own right, which I don't think was always the case in previous scholarship. And, and right. I think it's wonderful that we I can agree. do that. I agree, yeah. especially because if you if you look at based on his incredibly strong reception in yeah. his own lifetime and immediately in the generations after his life, like everyone was reading this guy, even yes. Christians who despised him, and they weren't yes. just reading him to refute him; they were reading him to be like, "This seems like a good theory of the soul. We should probably use this, even though it's by <laughs> the guy who hates Christians, right?" Which right, means right. he was an important author. Absolutely, absolutely, and and wrote on so many topics, which I, you know, from, from Cave of the Nymphs to the myth of Ur, I mean, you know, what more can you ask for? Yeah. That's like the whole, the whole other world topography from, from start to finish. Yes. And, and plus commentaries, you know, commentaries on, on Platonist texts and, and, and other kinds of philosophical materials that, you know, you're like, whoa, Mm. (laughs) that guy really knew what he was doing. I also appreciate this about Porphyry. Um, you know, I love Plotinus. Everyone who knows me knows I love Plotinus. I wear my heart on my sleeve. But he's very serious. And he, he doesn't really get into the kind of folkloric detail. He does. He never talks about the Roman world. Like, he's, he couldn't care less about the Roman world. He's living yeah. in through the harshest part of the third century in Rome at the heart of power. And he's like, doesn't mention any of it. Yeah. Porphyry, he's like Plutarch. He loves lore yes. and culture and... And yes. uh, he's like an antiquarian and an ethnographer and all that stuff, which makes him really fun to read. 
Yes, really, really fun to read. And it's funny, you, you mentioned Plutarch in the same breath, because Plutarch is another one of my faves. I love Plutarch, and I love Porphyry too. So, um, and I do see that they share a certain curiosity and eclecticism that is, and, and a very down-to-earth style, I think, that's very engaging to me anyway. But as far as his astrology goes, I think he, he lets his astrology inform his philosophy. And he doesn't shy away from that. Hmm. Um, I, I I don't, I mean, I can't certainly can't give you an opinion on whether I think he was a practicing astrologer, but he certainly knew what he was talking about. And I, I think he certainly had very good knowledge of what's happening in astrology in both theory and practice. Right. Now, here's a question for you. You know, one of the places... Well, actually, before we even get into that, let's let's just talk quickly about the the sources for Porphyry's astrology that we have, right? There's a few little comments in the Life of Plotinus that let us know he's interested in astrology in some very general way. Then there's this On What Is Up To Us, a short yes. fragmentary piece. You'll find it in the Teubner edition of Fragments by Smith, Fragments 181 to 187. And there's also some comments, there's some fragments of a commentary on Plato's Republic, which yes. you treat as possibly being the same um, text, actually, but at any rate, dealing with similar issues, so we can be, we can consider yeah. them together. And, and, I, and I should say that, that that view about the two texts being connected, I believe, is James Wilberding's view. Right, yeah, he argues for it, doesn't he? going out on a limb. There have been big arguments about texts in Porphyry, different Porphyry texts being the same, and there have been big um, arguments over it down the years, so it's always good when someone makes a new one. There's also a book on embryology, isn't there? Yes, yes. But when it was first discovered, they didn't think it was by Porphyry, but they later, but later it was deemed to be genuine Porphyry, yes. It's a book called To Gowrus on how embryos are ensouled. It's a wonderful piece because it he goes through all the phases of gestation and birth. And his purpose is to tell you what's going on with the soul in all this. And it's not just the embryo soul. It's the mother's and the father's soul. And it's the soul that enters the child at, at the moment of birth. So he goes through the whole process of gestation, birth, incarnation, and the soul component in all that. And within that framework, you can see astrological content and things that tie back to treatises like On What Is Up To Us and the Commentary on the Republic. So, this isn't exactly astrology as we defined it earlier, because this doesn't have anything to do necessarily with divination broadly understood, but it has to do with the celestial regions, let's say, having effects on the soul. Like when the soul enters the body, it has to pass through these areas in the heavens. Yes. And as yes. it does so, it gains attributes. We've seen this already yeah. when we discussed uh, the Hermetica, of course, those yes. who remember the Poimandres from the Hermetica will remember this, precisely this story of Descent of the Soul. But we get it very explicitly in Porphyry, don't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, he even 
uh, goes through the the planetary spheres. So it's not just um, it's not a vague thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty specific. And we'll see this again when we get to Macrobius. Um, in Absolutely. More of which may be Porphyrian than is explicit in his text, right? So he may be relying on Porphyry more than we think he is, or that more than we can prove he is in various discussions. Yes, and, and Numenius is also in there somewhere, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so we have this idea of the soul coming through the heavens, gaining accretions which have, you know, sort of a planetary nature. So, for example, the moon is always associated with generation in these sort of chains and so on. Um, Venus is always associated with some kind of social or sexual linking of humans together. But what do we call this? It's not astrology. What is this? We need a way to talk about this view of the heavens. I've been pestering all my friends who are (laughs) scholars of astrology about this. It's, It's like astral physics, basically. It's like ancient soul physics, astral soul physics. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're throwing out this idea and I'm not sure. What do you think? (laughs) I'm not sure that I have an answer for you. Maybe you could call it a cosmography, Uh Hmm. Um, an astrological cosmography, because it is certainly dependent on astrological ideas. Right. For instance, the Chaldean order of planets, which is a huge part of how astrology gets into the zeitgeist i mean we we the seven day week mm. has a lot of astrological background in it yeah and it's based on the planets often in the order of their movement from slowest to fastest so saturn jupiter mars sun venus mercury moon mm. right and and porphyry does cover this you know in uh so in, in a number of his treatises i'm, I'm just trying to think through how we want to talk about this stuff, because if we do take astrology as of in a narrow sense, and I think we need a term for the narrow, I mean, maybe we should take the Greek term and call it, you know, well, even the, there's more than one Greek term for various forms of astrology as well. But to talk about astrology as specifically the art and or science of predicting stuff based on drawing up charts, the, the whole horoscopic chart-based okay. art yeah, or yeah. science, okay. right? If that's mm-hmm. astrology... This is something else. This is like maybe a, maybe an astrological worldview, something like that. Certainly. Yes, you could say that. And that's why I said cosmography. Yeah, I like know, it. I wanted to bring in that cosmos idea because it, it is a, a way that all astrologers do look at the cosmos and its connection to right. this world. Yeah. Presumably all astrologers who believe in a soul that comes from somewhere else and descends into a body, right? Yeah, no, I'm just talking about the the cosmology of astrology. Gotcha. You know, um, I mean, whatever your views are on the soul or whether you think that astrology is physical causation or or signs that the heavens are providing us, the map is, is similar. Right. So before I ask you more about Porphyry's theory and how astrology plays into his philosophy, there's one other text that is absolutely fascinating that very under-researched in the literature, which is his introduction to Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos. Yes. And this thing survives, like, in extenso. It's messed up, but you can get it in the yeah. um, the CCAG series, the... Catalogum Codicum Astrologorum Graecorum. Graecorum, thank you. Volume 5.4, 5.4. This is seemingly by Porphyry, 
an introduction to Ptolemy's great work for great four books on astrology. So we have a theoretical kind of intro to an astrological book by Porphyry. Except that it isn't really very much about Ptolemy. Tell us about uh, this text. Well, this is this is a very, as as you say, um, the whole issue is quite complicated, um, and and I know that there's some recent work that I'm not sure has been published yet, and I have not read it myself, so I don't know how to assess it. Saying that more or less that the whole thing is spurious. I'm not sure that that's true. I think. It's certainly possible that it is compiled of things that are genuinely Porphyrian and other things that are maybe not. And there's certainly even in the past 40 years or so of people writing about this, you know, they will say, I think Pingree would have been one of them, but I, I, I won't tell you where he said it because I can't think of it right now, that, oh, this chapter is spurious. You know, this one's from Demophilus. This is 10th century, whatever it is. A lot of it seems to refer back to um, statements as ascribed to Antiochus of Athens about certain techniques of astrology. But even that is hard to pinpoint historically because a lot of our understanding of Antiochus is coming from a later compendium by Rhetorius. So it gets very uh, messy, it, very fast. But I think at least from my point of view, um, the, the important chapters for me in the, in the introduction to the Satrapi Laws are, are the ones that talk about finding the different lords that rule over various parts of the chart and an ultimate lord who's called the house master of the nativity. Or you call the the janitor. Yes, and this and this idea, this idea of the Lord of the Geniture, this goes right into medieval astrology and gets amplified quite a lot. So from my point of view, in terms of, of Porphyry looking at what I entitled in my article, The Diamond Birth and the Stars, he is the the astrological doctrine of finding this Lord of the Nativity can be directly connected with the other texts that he's using, like Tagaurus and like on what is up to us, to connect his views, his astrological views about finding, and I, I make the argument in my article, finding the personal diamond in the chart. I think that for him, this is a method for doing that. And your personal diamond, of course, is going to bring in things like the myth of Ur and all of that cool stuff. Mm. Now, th this is fascinating for many, many reasons. We, of course, in Plato have very important daimonology, both we have Socrates' daimonion, who tells him yes. not to do stuff that's going to get him into trouble. That's one model. Then we have the myth of Ur, where you have the, the daimonion that is, well, some people want to say it's allotted to you between incarnations, but then the text actually seems to say you choose it in the Republic yes. itself. Which and, it does, yes. And then that is going to be your guardian angel, as it were, to put it in modern familiar terms in your yes. embodied life. But this being, this daimon, may also have some kind of aspect of a higher self of yeah. the human being, which is... And uh, certainly Plotinus even talks about that a little bit when he talks about you know, the diamond that is at the level above you. 
so that kind of idea was going on certainly yeah. in the zeitgeist around the time that Porphyry is thinking about all this stuff. And it reminds me of, as well of, of Clement. If you just substitute angel for daimon, you get yes. the same thing. You have which, these levels of is, angels ranked above each other and they're, you sort of yeah. get promoted. Yes, exactly. And of course, you know, the, the Christians are the ones who uh, made what we call the guardian angel into the guardian angel because before that it was the guardian daimon. And we could also thank the Christians for demonizing the word diamond. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Christians. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, we can also thank Platonists like Porphyry, who have a strong belief in mischievous, bad daimones down here. Because in earlier Platonism, you simply don't have bad divine powers at all. Like, all divine powers yeah. are good, right? Yeah. This idea of daimones that are problematic comes in through... Yeah, well, yeah. And this is, of course, the whole problem with even the whole concept of daimon, <laughs> which which I, I, I do also address in my book because you because it's such a multivalent term, you can't just say it's one thing. Right. But in Porphyry's case, in in the area that we're discussing for the purposes of this talk, it's all about the personal daimon. It's all about what is the relationship of that daimon to the soul as it goes into incarnation, what is it in charge of, and how can you work with it? And so one of the ways you can work with it is, is astrology helpful in figuring out the nature of your daimon? Well, I think that that is what Porphyry is getting at. You know, um, certainly he doesn't, doesn't, never uses the word daimon in the introduction to the Tetrapilos in, in chapter 30, which is the really, really relevant chapter for this. But why does he even care? I mean, he goes a lot further than other people who are writing about this, this, what, what's called in Greek the oikodespotes or the the housemaster. Um, again, another very complicated term which we don't need to get into now. But he is much he goes much deeper into the concept, and he really is very focused on finding this Lord of the Nativity who will be able to oversee all the stuff in your life. And what is that other than the personal diamond in the myth of Ur, who's coming to do the same thing. And so this isn't daimon in any in any specific rung in the level of reality sense. This is just daimon no. as a divine being, just a general yes, term for a divine being. as a being. divine being. Yeah, and I I think for in Porphyry's view here, I mean, I, I don't want to get into, because this could be a whole another conversation, you know, what if you get a bad daimon for your personal daimon? <laughs> but that's a, that's a topic for another time, I think. Right. I, I think... Theoretically and and ideally, what Porphyry is discussing is a diamond who has your best interests at heart and wants you to be the most virtuous that you can be and urges you toward that kind of making the right choices mm. that will enrich your life. And even if he doesn't mean that the daimon and the oikodespotes are the same guy, mm. it, 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 it still would be... Um, and I, I think it's a, a plausible idea that they are, that, that the Oikodespotes could just be very naturally described as a daimon, one of many different yeah. types. Yeah. Um, even well, if, and, and I think Iamblichus even does that. Yeah, Iamblichus does this. That's which he, yeah. he takes Porphyry's question, doesn't he, about the Oikodespotes and just yes. and responds with the daimon you're talking about. Here's what yeah. we can say about that. So he, make, he exactly. thinks it's perfectly natural, right? That's right. When we get to the great uh, theurgy debate... The, the, the wonderful debate between 
Porphyry and Jamblica, so that or the question and answer session. Yes. Um, we will talk about this. But if it is very helpful to you, to you as a human being to know the nature of this higher being that is sort of because just simply by physics or by cosmography, as you say, yeah. is stationed above you. Like you, this yeah. this being is is determining your life. Astrology becomes an incredibly useful and arguably essential tool in the arsenal of the philosopher because yes. you got to know about this being. Right, right, it's, and I and I do argue in my my book that this is a kind of theurgy for Porphyry. Interesting. Now, I was going to ask you about theurgy. Do you, do you think, because, you know, what Porphyry's attitude is in the letter to Anibo is something that has been debated and debated and debated and debated. But one way of reading it is Porphyry has great respect for the views of this guy, let, let, assuming he actually writes it to Iamblichus, right? He's expecting an answer from Iamblichus, not from Anibo, because he could also be expecting an answer from some Hellenized Egyptian priest, right? And then Yamblichus yeah. just steps into the breach and says, I'll answer that. Da, da, da. Right. I am a right. bomb on. But <laughs> let's say he is, he is looking for Yamblichus's response, right? Yeah. This would imply that Porphyry is, re well, we know he's really interested in means of, well, in, I guess you'd say, occult sciences. In, in, in any possible way we have to know about these yeah really existing immaterial beings that are affecting our lives. And right. so he's saying to Yamblichus, tell me more, like, what, do you, what have you got? Yeah, yeah. So in that, in that sense, astrology would be part of, if, if by theurgy we mean means including ritual, like physical ritual, and also mm -hmm. um, occult sciences like astrology for getting higher knowledge. Yes. If, if we have that kind of very broad... Um, definition yes. of theurgy. Yeah, astrology yes. is clearly fits into that. And Porphyry yes. is just asking a bunch of questions to fill himself in more because he's really interested in this. Um, yes, I the, think so. These avenues. Yeah. And, and and I think, I mean, there there's all kinds of debate on whether this is a an argument between them. I tend toward the view, like Crystal Addy does, that it's more in the vein of problems and solutions dialogue that that he might be asking questions that might seem provocative just to get the conversation rolling, you know, yeah. uh, and to, and to tease out the views of, of, of each of the people, you know, he might question something that he actually uh, sets great store by, but he wants to know what Yablokas thinks about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe he's, you know, if you, if you try to put yourself in Porphyry's skin, mm. a student of Plotinus who, who doesn't have, time for a lot of the stuff that Iamblichus thinks is really important. I'm not saying Plotinus yeah. is, rejects all ritual or anything like that. I think that's a, that's an over-interpreting the evidence. I think he just doesn't think it's... It, in the genre he's writing in, the Enneads, it's not something we talk about, right? doesn't mean he's right. not making sacrifices or doing this or that, but it's not something... It's not relevant to his genre. But Porphyry, in finding his authorial voice, his, his voice as a teacher, his voice as a philosopher probably is coming under pressure from various different people around him. Like, like, what is all this theurgy stuff? And he, maybe he's trying to elicit a, well, I know a guy who can, I know yeah. a guy who's really good on that theurgy stuff. I'll just write a letter to him and he can uh, lay it out for you. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I should mention in, in reference to the myth of Ur, that when uh, Porphyry talks about the incarnation process 
in on what is up to us. There is absolute astrological content in the way that that happens. So he's bringing astrology into that process of the incarnation and that it's happening at a particular moment. And it's very obvious that he thinks of the incarnation as being shown in the birth chart. Hmm. And so once you have that, then you take the birth chart and in trying to find this Lord of the Nativity, a.k.a for sake of argument, the personal diamond, right? He starts looking for the planet that is the most strongly placed, the happiest planet, best positioned planet in the chart to take that function. Hmm. He does not want a weak diamond. He does right. not want a bad diamond. He wants the best possible example, the astro best possible astrological example of that that he can find, which I find fascinating. That's where that, no matter how much you want to approach astrology as a hard science, right? As a thing yeah. with rules and regulations that just generate charts and interpretations. There's always that moment of uh, some, some of the Latin astrologers, I think, call it rectificatio, where you, you then interpret, like having got all your data and got your chart and got everything set there. Then there comes this hermeneutical moment where you pick out what's significant and interpret yes. based on that. Yes, yes, exactly. And um, and I should say that this is this is where the to steal from Jeffrey Cornelius. This is where the mo moment of astrology happens. It, it's the astrologer's judgment, and even in find looking for a personal diamond in the chart, there are a number of different ways that you can go with that. You know, there's not. It's not always clear cut. And this is the this is the thing with astrology. You can't. It's it's not like oh well, there's that. Oh well, that's obvious. It's it's not always like that. But there is a in the practice of astrology when you're looking at a chart, things hit you as the astrologer. And I can't imagine that this wouldn't have happened in antiquity too. Why do you pick on you know what? Why does that draw your notice? What is it about that particular? configuration that somehow seems important to you. you. And then you can say why you think it's important, but what drew, you, drew your eye there in the first place? And so I, I think that what's happening for Porphyry, when that the, the whole process of going through this, what you said were rules and things. And if, if, if this that, you know, if this is the answer, then you go here. And if that is the answer, you go there. And then you go on another chain of, you know, yes or no answers leading you towards an inevitable end. It's not always that cut and dried. Mm. It's not always that cut and dried. Because, and this is the divinatory aspect, I would say also, <laughs> which will open up yet another can of worms. Well, Dorian Greenbaum, Thank you so much for talking to us about tantalizing sprinklings of astrology that we find all through little fragmentary bits of porphyry that survive. It definitely helps us um, complete our picture of porphyry, but also really helps us get a better handle on another way in which astrology is kind of a major part of scientific discourse in his age, such that um, when you're trying to figure out stuff like 
how the soul enters the body, you turn to the relevant science, which is astrological cosmography. And uh, how when you're trying to bridge between the metaphysical realm and the physical realm, this cosmography supplies you with the terrain for, for bridging that gap and also gives you landmarks and gives you, if not cut and dried solutions, at least some signposts to go by in figuring out who you are and how you got to be who you are and where you're going. Yes, precisely. And I, I think it's it's here a combination of the physical components and the, for lack of a better term, the metaphysical components that well, at least Porphyry is bringing together. Stay esoteric. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>